and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch from Planet 5D joins me today to discuss all kinds of fun stuff. Mitch, what have you been up to? I am awesome, DJ. Thanks for having me on yet again. It's great Friday, and I've been working my tail off, as well as freezing my butt, because it's incredibly cold here in St. Louis. Man, we had uh, 65 yesterday. It was out oh, in a kidding. t-shirt, and now it's freezing, and I'm back to a jacket inside again. So, Oh, man. I've, I've got my heater going right here in my uh, planetarium right here. It's hot. <laughs> wow. It's, it gets cold. I mean, my feet yesterday. I mean, it was like 8 degrees yesterday morning, and my feet inside the office get really cold because it's a concrete floor. But anyway, that's way more than people want to know about my office. Well, my office is actually getting cleaned up a little bit, and... Uh, I've made a little room so I can set stuff actually on the desk. So that's good. I've got this area kind of sort of organized. And I think Mitch and I are sort of on track with this whole podcast thing. So now we are on to the news. Time for the news. First up on the list, we've got... What news? Uh-oh. Yeah. The news, Mitch. It's uh, oh, the news. The news. <laughs> the new news. The first thing we've got up on the list is the Olympus Air. The Air was announced a few weeks ago, and there's been some leaked pictures of it and a, a few random specs, but nothing specific up until now. But it looks like they've released a little bit more information on this tiny little Micro Four Thirds camera. For those of you not familiar with the Air, it is basically a four-thirds sensor in a tiny little tube that's designed to clip to your cell phone. Uh, now, for the updates on this, it turns out that Olympus is going to make this device open source. They've already released an SDK as well as mounting specs for it, and you can go download those. I'll have a link to that in the show notes so that developers can start working on apps for your phone for this device as well as mounts and other strange adapters to get this going. It looks like the United States price, if we actually don't have to order it online, is going to be around $289, which is a pretty attractive price for a 16-megapixel Micro Four Thirds camera. Mitch, you've been kind of looking at this over the last couple of shows. What do you think about this going open source? I think uh, it's awesome. Absolutely awesome. And, and you you know, I've, I've delayed picking up a Micro Four Thirds camera, but this is really kind of cool. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this works. So I might actually have to buy one and buy some Micro Four Thirds lenses to go with it. I, I've, I've complained to the major manufacturers for a long time that they need to have the ability to allow us, the users, to write software for the cameras. Uh, yay! Absolutely. And... They're not going there, so I'm thrilled that these guys are doing this. Uh, Olympus, you rock for doing this, and I'm really excited about this. I, I could really see a lot of uses for something like this. For a 289 man, this yeah. is kind of a uh, almost a point-and-shoot price, and you could slap one of the uh, cheaper Micro Four Thirds lenses on there. There's several that are in the $150 to $200 range, and man, this is a sexy little item. Even if yeah. you just use it for photography... Having a 16 megapixel actual detachable lens system that you can carry with you, put a couple of good primes on this. Man, I, I want this. I'm going to buy this when it comes out. I don't need it, 
And also, there's no notice yet on what the video specs are for this. This right. may not shoot video. It may only be a photography tool. But still, 289 is a great entry-level price to get people into a fairly new sensor system uh, for Micro Four Thirds shooting without having to invest a huge amount of money. Yeah. I want it. I want it. I mean, the only thing that's a negative to me is the fact that it's, you know, it's not physically really all one package, you know, because you have to put your phone on it and connect it somehow. And I'm not sure exactly how those latchings work. Well, there's an interesting bit about it. If you check out the SDK page, they have the mounting specs for the back of it. It appears there's some sort of twist lock system uh, built into the back of the air. So people can actually design and develop a phone holder slash camera body to go with this if they'd like. Uh, the reason Olympus is being so open about this is because it's just a barrel right now. And as you said, it's not a very convenient way to carry your camera around, but with right. a few accessories or maybe some fold out device or something like that, you could really turn this into a full fledged device you can hold in your hands. And I was surprised because normally they, if they do open source, they release the SDK for it so people can develop for it. But then right underneath that, it said, would you like to build something to go with this or, you know, design a project for this or hook it up to something? And then it had all of the specs for the mounting bracket on this as well, which is really cool. That's basically giving everybody the keys to the kingdom to mess around with right. this and do whatever they want. Yeah, it- I don't know if you looked at the video that's on the Petapixel link that you included in the show notes. Um, yeah, with the, the selfie shots and the fruit and the adjustments. Right. I hope right. that's not but, what this turns into. <laughs> no, it, but you know, at least it gives you some idea of how you can use it. and It's, it's better than just the still pictures. Um, so fascinating a, a device. And, and the fact that they've gone open source with it is all the better. Good for, the, good for Olympus. Yay. I will be waiting to pick this up as soon as it's released, so hopefully reviews will be out. Another interesting and cool adaptation that's coming out, or is out actually already, is the GoPro adapting system from Backbone. The ribcage is an interesting upgrade to those of you looking to expand your 4K budget shooting on a GoPro Hero 4 Black Edition at a price of about $249. The upgrade kit basically allows you to attach lenses to your GoPro by replacing the standard lens and adding either an S mount, a CS mount, a C mount, or if you spend an extra $39, you can also add a Canon EOS mount, which that would be pretty ridiculous having a Canon lens attached to your GoPro. Uh, looks like the crop factor with the 1.2 or 1 by 2.3 sensor is about 5.7. So you're going to need some pretty wide lenses to get anything that's in the usable range. And you're basically going to have a hard time getting a shallow depth of field out of this unless you have an extremely uh, long lens and you you get a ways away from your subject. There are also some limitations with the GoPro itself. For those of you who've used it in the past, you're probably aware that the exposure controls are a little bit lacking. Uh, you uh, can't really... A little bit. Yeah. The GoPro Hero 4, they've gotten a little bit better. Now you can set a maximum ISO and you can do a few other minor things, but it's still pretty rudimentary compared to what you would probably want out of an actual camera. 
So those are the limitations for this, but it's 249. Mitch, are you willing to actually crack open your GoPro and take a look inside and mess around with the sensor and adapters? I tend to think that that's about the only way that a GoPro is really usable. Whoa. Now, <laughs> I, I, GoPros are great for certain things. Uh, and, and I have to give you a caveat that I'm still on a GoPro 2, okay? I haven't even upgraded to the 3 or the 4 because I just don't find for my usage, and again, I'm not making major Hollywood movies or anything, uh, that the GoPro isn't something that I use very often. It's great to take on family vacations and shoot time lapses or whatever, but it just doesn't fit in. I'd much rather use the iPhone and do stuff with that because I can see what I'm filming as opposed to you know, dealing with the Wi-Fi and all the other stuff with the new GoPros. So I, I just found it very limiting. Now, Shane Hurlbut, of course, used several of them on Need for Speed 12 or whatever it was that he just <laughs> shot and got some amazing stuff out of them. Now, we also have to realize that he's probably cooking them a little bit just like this particular box is. I don't think he's using them straight out of the box. Uh, but uh, so they do have uses. They're, they're great for certain situations. My particular needs don't don't fill that right now. So I think they've gotten steadily better. Uh, the two that you have now, if you go to yeah. the three plus and the four respectively, there's a noticeable jump in quality from the image you get. And the four is even somewhat respectable in low light situations. Somewhat. Uh, yeah, yeah, I want to stress somewhat. You're not going to take this out <laughs> into something that you would expect a DSLR to handle. But, man, it does a pretty decent job and doesn't get very grainy, even when you're in a, you know, room environment or something like that. The lens quality, it's okay. Um, a GoPro is a very obvious thing to spot in a film. When you look at the image quality, you know, okay, that's a GoPro shot. Even with the ProTune and everything else they've added, it hasn't gotten to the the level that you get out of other cameras, but there are some other adapters. I believe somebody who actually rents a GoPro that's actually been chipped or yeah. modded in some way that allows you to actually control all of the settings as opposed to just put a lens on it. And I've seen pictures of that, but I think that they don't sell that. They only rent it out because the mod is so complicated to do. So there are ways to make the GoPro better. This is only 249. So if you find yourself not really enjoying what you get out of your GoPro right now, might as well take it apart and try and put some C-mount lenses on it or something else. That's not a bad idea. If you love what you've got already and you think it's great, then maybe leave it alone. I don't think I'm going to tear mine apart because I use it the way it is on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, if, if you're using it on a regular basis, then I guess you would have to buy another one on that eBay used market that you so often advocate. Uh, that you could tear up and, and switch around with this particular thing. I, I, there are so many great hacks that are coming to the GoPro. I think it's finally getting to the point where it's much more usable for the individual situations that you might need. Uh, so I'm thrilled to see stuff like this coming out. I'm trying to find the link to that other box that you're talking about, and I'm, I'm not finding i think it's novo isn't it that is sounds that familiar i saw it at nab last year and i read right. all the announcements and stuff and got to play around with it but uh i never actually rented one out from them so i don't know right. 
you know, how well it works. Uh, people say it was great. And, you know, the sensor in the camera itself isn't bad. It's just that to get a package into that price range, you're basically using not the best glass in order to right. create the GoPro in an affordable range. So because of that, that's really where it suffers. If you can put good lenses in front of it, then you can do a lot of cool stuff. The other cool thing is that you can actually remove the IR filter on this and use an IR light to shoot in the dark. So if you ever wanted to get that, like, I don't know, kind of commando look out of your film or something like that, you could probably attach a lens to your GoPro, remove the filter, and use only IR lights so that you can see what's being filmed, but uh, no one else can. That's kind of a, a cool extra option out of this. I'm looking on YouTube or I'm on eBay right now for used ones and they're holding their price. So I don't think this Are is they? something I'm going to dissect. Yeah. I'm looking a hero three black edition, uh, is in the three nineteen to three fifty range and a hero four black is staying steady in the high three hundreds. And I believe new it's four twenty or four hundred. So yeah, it's not a huge savings to go that route. Maybe that's right. one to not worry about. If you have an older Hero Three Plus, that one has even less explo- exposure controls, so this may even be a worse option for you. But it's cool to see that people are upgrading and messing around with this. Maybe since there's some heated competition from Apple uh, with their patents on a similar style camera, um, GoPro might get a little bit more. Uh, handy with the upgrades for people so that they can mess around with a few of the features that they've always wanted and could be available via firmware. Well, the one thing you have to be careful about, at least in this particular instance, is that it's specifically targeted at the Hero 4. So if you're going out on eBay and buying one of the older models, it may not work. They do sell a kit that's 199 it's actually a little bit cheaper and that is the hero 3 and hero 3 plus edition okay and that's still available on the ribcage backbone website so if you have a three and a four maybe you can experiment with your three uh that's not a bad deal it's 49 extra dollars to get the package for the four and you also have to be careful with the c-mount lenses some of them are designed for specific sensor sizes and on the backbone website they actually explain okay this one is for hd shooting only this one's for 4k shooting this one's for 2.7k shooting uh, because it uses a little bit different part of the sensor as you're filming and those don't have enough coverage to kind of get over the top of that so if you ever got into your hero settings and you see that medium wide and uh, uh small or, or whatever i I don't remember what the last one is on the list. That's what they're using in order to kind of crop in to get these C-mount lenses to fit some of the smaller ones. So be cautious when you're looking at these to make sure that the lens you buy actually does have enough coverage to give you the proper 5.7 crop factor. Otherwise, you're going to get some other even higher number. And maybe that 11 is going to be an 85 or something crazy like that, you know. Wow. Just as an update, by the way, I'm looking at your One Lone Dork channel on YouTube, and there's a live now uh, icon that so people that's how they're finding you. So they're going to your channel and jumping over there, and there are currently ten people watching right now. So we're live. Hi, people. Well, thanks, guys, for watching this live. It's early in the morning here, and it's probably late in the evening somewhere else. 
Moving yep. on down the line to other interesting bits, we've got the SOC from Qualcomm. This is the Snapdragon 810, and this is an 8-core, 64-bit processor that supports uh, DDR4 memory as well as a 14-bit image sampling processor. That's I'm out. I, I got to hold you up, DJ, because maybe some people know what an SOC is. Ah. I mean, you had to put it in there. I mean, let's, let's clarify for people if case they're not as geeky as DJ. So an SOC is a system ahead. on a chip. And right. when they say system on a chip, that means that it has the processor, it has the RAM, it has all of the other things, including the display controller and a modem for handling 3G or 4G connection, a USB chip, as well as multimedia processors, all on a single processing chip in order to handle basically the entire system with only the connections to bring in, say, the audio plug or the input devices or the touchscreen, stuff like that. So SOC, system on a chip, is basically an entire computer crammed down into a single microprocessor space. Got it. How's that for a definition? So That's awesome. Qualcomm is one of the leading providers, but ARM is actually the company that designs a lot of the uh, chip architecture. So if you look at some of the cameras, and the reason I bring this up, it's not because I'm excited about chips. You know, I am, but you guys aren't. This is a, a camera <laughs> podcast. Um, the reason I bring this up is because the Snapdragon 810 has an onboard processor that handles both encoding and decoding of H.265 recording. So that's basically what you're getting in the Samsung NX1. It also has a 14-bit ISP, which is your image signal processor. And that's the same um, bit rate that's available out of the 5D Mark III's uh, Digic 5 Plus processor. So what, what this boils down to basically is that these new versions of cell phone processors are as powerful or more powerful than the ones that we're seeing in current cameras. And this looks to be from the the information I've gathered pretty close to what you get out of the Samsung NX one's dream uh, processor. And they, they call it dream. It's spelled D R I M E with a space and then the letter V, but it's pronounced dream from what I've gathered. So that's also an arm architecture as well. The thing that Samsung's doing right now that's interesting in the NX one is they actually allow the change of resources and allocations on the chip via actual switches, and I'm not saying physical switches, but software switches, so they can change the way the chip is connected to the memory bus and stuff like that in order to optimize for certain things. The Snapdragon does not do that, but it does have the ability to capture a 14-bit image up to 55 megapixels of image processing and H.265 recording and playback. It also has the ability to playback a 4K image, so we're talking a tiny little sensor that is going to basically enable encoding, decoding on the chip as well as handle pretty much everything that the Samsung NX1 is doing right now. Mitch, are you excited about this or is this just kind of like that tech angle that's not really that interesting? Of course it's interesting, DJ. If you brought it up and you find it interesting, I love it. Um, How's that? <clears throat> it's It's fascinating to me to see that incredible amounts of processing power 
are being added to things like phones, uh, which just goes to enhance the first story we talked about from the um, the ah, Olympus oh, Air. The Olympus, my brain went dead. You know, the main thing processing that we're going to have on phones is going to allow us to do so much stuff. I, you got to remember, I'm an old guy. I remember working on IBM 360 computers when they were the size of a room. Okay, and now we've got more processing power on our iPhones that we don't even use really to any great extent than, you know, like 30 of those computers put together back in the old days. So I've seen the growth of this technology and I'm constantly amazed at, at where we're going. And so to see this kind of technology coming forth is, is mind blowing. Well, and to wrap this back around to the GoPro, we are talking about just a little bit ago, uh, the company that makes the internals for the GoPro, uh, basically releases information on their next generation of boards every year. And that's how people figure out kind of what's going into the next GoPro with these sensors. It's the same way Canon and Panasonic and, and these other companies all have fancy names for their sensors or their image, uh, image control chips, but they're really just arm processors from devices like cell phones that have been modified to handle whatever application they're being used for. So Canon's Digic processor, the Panasonic Venus engine, uh, Sony has one as well. And I can't remember what the name of it is off the top of my head. Uh, the Dream processor from Samsung. These are all really kind of uh, ARM chips that have been modified to go into cameras. And as these cell phone processors get faster, better, and cooler, that just means the features are going to leak into the DSLRs that we're shooting with. And if it's in a phone, that means it's a pretty affordable chip. It's not very long before Canon starts using it in maybe the 5D Mark IV or something like that, you know? Uh, well, <laughs> let's go back to my analogy of Canon being an oil tanker out on the open seas, and it takes an oil tanker seven miles to turn or to slow down. Um I agree that eventually Canon will be putting this kind of technology on there. They're they're going to have to, or else they're going to die. But uh, the major manufacturers like Canon and Nikon are much slower to it than Olympus and Samsung and the other guys. Yeah, speaking Sony. of uh, fast moving cameras, and Mitch gave me a good transition here. Is Sony right, basically has announced that they're going to be ditching a few of their departments? If you ever looked at the org chart for Sony. It's all over the place. They have their fingers in all kinds of different pies. But it looks like they're going to divest themselves of audio and video departments and spin those off into subsidiaries. They did this last year with their laptop series, Vio. Uh, they sold that to an Asian conglomerate that's going to be producing the, under the Vio name now. And so Sony will no longer be involved. But it looks like they're going to hold on to their core growth markets, which is entertainment, the PlayStation system and their image sensor development division. Apparently their image sensor development division is very profitable and Sony's doing really well with that. And I think that's kind of reflected in the a seven line of cameras because man, are they kind of swarming the market with popularity? People are really right. excited about the a seven S they're really excited about the new a seven Mark II. And Nikon, Fuji, Pentax, all these guys are starting to use Sony sensors in at least some of their cameras, if not 
their entire product line in in the near future. I believe the Nikon D800 was an example of a Sony sensor inside a Nikon body. I can't name any Fuji uh, cameras off the top of my head, but I mean, apparently they're using them as well. I had to go dig around and find links to find out what sensors were in all these. What do you think, Mitch? Uh, is Sony going to pare down and finally like tackle the camera market properly as opposed to kind of just hitting it with little random bits? Well, let's... The first question, of course, is whether or not they're going to sell the subsidiary, right? So there's there's two functions there. They like the VIO uh, PC business. They split that off and then they sold it. Uh, the indications that I read in these articles was that they're going to split it off as a separate entity, but probably not sell it. Uh, so that still means that they're going to have good control and and just it it gives the subdivision subsidiary maybe is the right word <laughs> subdivision i'm thinking houses uh it gives them more control uh, i like the fact that, that they're able to control their own destiny as opposed to having to always deal with the mothership um so that that could mean a lot of good news uh, sony's making a lot of inroads in the camera business and if they continue doing what they're doing in a smaller, leaner package, that's that's only awesomeness for us. You know, one of the weird things when I was researching Sony's financials was actually that they make a huge amount of money on insurance. They have a huge insurance <laughs> arm out there that's just like, uh, you know, I've never heard of Sony insurance, but apparently in the Asian market, it's, it's a huge thing. So that's one of their like big money-making schemes. And in the States, we don't know anything about it. It's it's strange to me, too, all the other tiny little bits that Sony has going. You know, did you see their media player? They're, no, I haven't seen that. They have an MP3 player that I believe it's branded under the Walkman name, and it's supposed to compete with that high-fidelity system that uh, whatever famous singer was promoting on Kickstarter a few years ago. And it's it plays flack and everything else, and it's like a seven hundred dollar MP3 player for your pocket. Wow, where did that come from? I mean, what division of Sony is just out there dreaming up random products like that? Is there really a need for those sorts of things? Apparently so. I mean, I I, I actually thought the Walkmans <laughs> were pretty much dead. You know, back in the old days, the Walkmans were tape based, so I didn't know they were actually doing mp3 players i shouldn't say mp3 if it's playing flack and everything else yeah they're wide support for high bandwidth media and uh i'm trying to remember the name of the singer that promoted the other one i i want to say it was bob dylan but i i could be wrong (laughs) on that Uh, bob dylan promoting a product come on yeah it's uh it was some kind of like triangular shaped mp3 player that he had on kickstarter and uh his thing was that he had a connection with music companies that would allow him the original masters in order to get the highest quality sample of the audio to go out to his product. And then he would have a special store where you paid, you know, X number of dollars more per album to get the flack or the high fidelity version of it, as opposed to getting the standard iTunes version. So I guess that's a thing. And while we're talking about audio, (laughs) let's get out of that little rat hole and move on to something a little bit cooler and more DSLR related. Right here in front of me, I have this little device right here. This is a Beach Tech DXA-SLR. 
This is an XLR adapter for your DSLR camera. And if you look in the show notes, I've got a few pictures of some of the other devices. Right here is the JuiceLink Riggy 333 system. And I've also got the Audio-Technica unit, I believe, laying around here somewhere. A lot of people say that you should only record audio into a separate audio device. Now, that's fine if you're working with a group of people. But if you don't have a group of people with you to work with, you need to be a little bit more nimble. And one of these XLR adapters allows you to record audio directly into something like your 5D Mark III or your 7D or something like that. And with the aid of Magic Lantern on some of those lower price cameras, you can actually see your audio level meters. Uh, some of these provide headphone monitoring so you can at least monitor the signal before it gets to the camera. And they allow you to control and power the phantom mics that you need to get good clean audio. So if you have a boom mic, you can self-boom your situation, power it with one of these guys, and run that directly into the camera. One of the best things about that is in post, you can actually have your audio and your video together in one spot as opposed to linking stuff and trying to use Pluralize or syncing it or whatever, and that speeds up the editing process. I wanted to ask you, Mitch, because you said you've been filming quite a bit lately. Are you recording audio directly into your camera, or are you recording it separately? I am doing it both ways. Uh, right now, I like when I'm down in my brand new observatory, as I call it, the studio downstairs in my basement. Uh, I run an NTG2 from Rode into the Juice Link Riggy Micro. I think it's the 222. And I shove that straight into my 5D Mark III. So, yes, I'm doing it directly into the camera. I'm also using the uh, Smart Lav Plus from Rode going straight into my iPhone. So I have the lav mic on my chest, and I'm, I'm doing that directly. And I like that because I can sync it through SoundCloud or um, Dropbox with the Rode Rec app. And that way I, I easily have it uploaded. I don't have to connect my phone directly to my silly computer. I mean, it, the worst part of the whole thing is taking those Dadgum CF cards and having to put them into a reader. I mean, if I could do that wirelessly too, I'd be so happy. Uh, and, and I know there are some, the, the y, wireless, what's that? The iFi card. That's wireless that you can get. Oh, yes. The one that uh, basically has a Wi-Fi broadcasting chip built into it. Those little orange right. guys. Right. I, so, so yes, I'm, I'm actually doing it both ways. And, and if I, it's, I'm doing that as a backup uh, so that I can have – I primarily use the, the audio from the lav. Uh, but there have been several times where I've screwed up and didn't turn it on or forgot to – oh, by the way, put on airplane mode and somebody called me in the middle of the thing or text came or whatever, which interrupted the recording. Uh, so then I at least have the, the uh, NTG audio coming in above me. And it also makes for nice syncage because I have, I'm usually recording with two cameras when I'm down there. Ah, okay. So yeah. that way I have the side camera, the side view of my lovely face and then the front on view. I know a lot of people swear by recording directly into a separate device, and that's fine. But honestly, and you know, for filmmaking especially, 
You're going to have other ambient noises that you use. You're going to have a background noise. You're going to get room sound, stuff like that. You can easily cover up the slight lack in quality of the audio recording in something like the 6D or the 5D Mark III. These cameras have a fairly decent uh, recording capability for what they are. And audio going directly into them through one of these XLR adapters isn't too bad. Uh, for most of my YouTube videos, I use one of these adapters or I actually feed my LAV directly into my camera. I've got uh, one of the Sennheiser G3 units and you can just set that up right into the, the cold shoe on your camera and plug that in and record audio that way. And it works pretty well. Honestly, most people don't even notice the difference in quality. You really have to get down to the nitty gritty and and listen to it with really good headphones and compare it to something else to notice the difference. For most people, these devices are a really affordable option as opposed to trying to sync and do all that other stuff. So that's definitely something to think about. The other thing is that something like the Riggy here allows three inputs as opposed to two inputs. So if you have a lot of people with lav mics on set, that extra one can give you enough to run like a boom mic or something like that. And then you can feed the two wireless channels into a single channel on your camera. Those are really awesome ways to kind of trick and get good audio out of your DSLR. The best thing is though, as Mitch said, is to get your mic close to your subject. His lav, as you mentioned, is probably his favorite. And the reason your lav usually sounds good is because it's really close to where your speaking hole is located. Your uh, speaking if, hole. <laughs> if you have a lav on your shirt, man, or your boom mic uh, close to your subject, as close as you can get it, you'll get a lot better audio than these microphones that mount directly to your camera. If you're shooting a close-up, the Rode um, VideoMic Pro or the older VideoMic system if you put that on your camera and get close enough to your subject, you're going to get pretty decent audio, but it's not for everything. If you have a subject that's five or six feet away and you try to use audio from something like that, it's not going to sound very good. And it's going to be noticeable that your film is a low budget video. Uh, <laughs> as soon as you start hearing crummy sound, you know, okay, this guy did not either have a sound man a, or didn't care enough to, to take care of the audio correctly. So those are a couple of things to think about. I have some uh, uh, links and notes in here, and the DXA SLR is down to about 200 bucks on BNH, and in the 120 to 130 dollar range on my favorite place to shop, eBay. So <laughs> definitely look at that. Also, the older Juice Link devices, the DT454, which was the original predecessor to the RM333 is available for in the sub $200 range on eBay. And I believe the Riggy is in the $399 to $499 range. So you can get a really good deal on some of these XLR boxes that are used and they provide phantom power. They give you mixing options. They allow you to do all sorts of fun stuff, which makes your audio that much better. Mitch, what do you think about that? Well, you're you're raising lots of awesome points. Uh, before I forget, I was really amused because I was watching a TV show the other day, and you always wonder how they record audio. And I, one of the actresses on the TV show, was sort of twisting quite often, and I was so amazed because you know if you've ever tried to hide a lav mic underneath somebody's clothes, you can often get the sound of the clothing moving underneath. And I was like, 
they're just putting lav mics on these actors and and they're obviously not even doing a good job of of con- I mean I couldn't see the lav mic but the sound was certainly coming through and I'm like how did they how did they not fix that or or use the boom mic that was overhead instead of her lav mic with all this clothing sound uh, that being said, one thing to remember as a tip, if you're starting to use these kind of boxes, like the, the Juice Link, the Riggy, the ones that you showed, and you're going to put the audio straight into your 5D Mark III, for example, send the volume on the 5D Mark III down, because the only thing that you're probably going to get a lot of of hiss on and the 5D Mark III because the preamps that are in the 5D Mark III aren't that, I won't say they're not that good. They're good, but the louder that you have the volume setting on the 5D Mark III, the more potential you're going to have for hiss. So use the awesome preamps that are in the Juice League Briggy and the other devices that you showed and tune your 5D Mark III down really lowly, low, low. And, and you'll get much better sound out of those boxes. Yeah, and it really depends on the gain out of the device you're using. So with the Beach Tech device, the gain is about 16 dB. So you will want to set your uh, audio input on your DSLR to about the quarter mark because that's about where you'll get a good signal level into the camera using the maximum gain out of this device. The Riggy and the Juice Link devices have a much stronger gain uh, their system, I believe, is able to output 30 or 40 dB. So there, Mitch is absolutely right. You run that down to just one click below off and then right. use all the gain out of this in order to accomplish that. If you're using a camera like the Panasonic GH4, the input for that is set more in the standard with a um, regular camera, video camera. So you don't need nearly as much gain and it's pretty easy to max that out. And the, uh, audio amplifiers inside of the GH4 are pretty decent. So keep that in mind. If you're using these, then you're not going to want to use this cranked all the way wide open and going into the camera. Or you're just going to blow it out. Right. And the key to all of that, because you've done all this before, is to do some testing before you get on set to make sure you know what the hell you're doing and you don't end up with crappy sound and have to record everything over. If you're interested in hearing all of these compared to each other, uh, there's a link in the show notes to a video I did that's testing the Tascam DR60D, the Juice Link Riggy, as well as the DXA-SLR and the Audio-Technica models all against each other uh, with similar or with the exact same microphone, similar settings, and so on to kind of give you an idea of what audio quality you can get out of those. So check that out. It'll help you decide. And also look on the used market because there isn't any reason why you need to spend a ton of money on one of these when there are so many floating around used that people just don't have, don't use, don't want anymore. And they're great prices, especially since Juice Link seems to come out with a brand new item and discontinue their older items once a year or once every two years. Have you ever used any of these uh, adapters where you can take an XLR straight into the iPhone? Uh, Yes, actually, I have an iRig Pre. Um, One of my interesting hacks on the internet is actually adapting that from a cell phone device into a DSLR device by modding the cable connectors internally and routing it through to the original monitoring port. They're pretty good. The iRig Pre is $34, I believe, maybe $40 now. And it provides a lot of gain, phantom power, and it sounds great plugged into a phone and great plugged into a camera for what it is. 
Well, there there actually is a device I was just looking uh, because we had an article many moons ago. There was a company called ETS that was developing a what they call a Balun, B-A-L-U-N, okay. which was a word I wasn't familiar with before. But basically, it was an XLR adapter to your iPhone, and they sent me one, and it didn't work. So they're still working on it. But I also noticed that there's a device from Sescom uh, that takes an XLR into an iPhone, which is pretty cool. Uh, so it's a straight adapter. It's $34.95 at whatever website I'm on. Uh, but I've never used those because the one that uh, ETS sent me never worked. And last I heard, they were still trying to fix that because the the iPhone interface is really kind of funky. Yeah, and there are some other stuff uh, to adapt to. Uh, Rode has that interesting uh, plug-in device. It's basically a set of of their microphones on an XY pattern that goes into the iPhone adapter. But then there was a the kerfuffle where Apple actually changed the connector style so that the device yes. they made to begin with no longer worked with the next generation. There are also a number of four track and uh, two track recorders that are made, I believe by Tascam where your uh, device actually plugs directly into the mixing board and all of the audio is routed into your iPhone or iPad, depending on the device you choose. Those aren't too bad because they run off of the power that your phone provides and some batteries so if you do need a field mixer and you're doing something like uh, Minch mentioned where he's recording and sending it to SoundCloud, those little devices are pretty sweet to have. And they were kind of like a mixed bag with weird issues. So you can get those again used for half as much as they were when they originally released a couple years ago. Right. There's some, like I said before, there's some amazing technology. The longer these things are in use, uh, the more things that people figure out to make them work even better. So, and it looks I'm, like I'm uh, Mitch has added that to the show notes. So if you want to check out that Sescom device, it's available there. Uh, the re- link for all the recorders tested is also in the show notes. Next up on the list is actually something from your site. I know you didn't write this, Mitch, but uh, you probably know a little <laughs> bit more about it than I do. This is that decoding software that's designed to work with uh, H.265. Can you tell me a little more about it? The guys at Cynic, I think is how they pronounce it, they're from overseas, are doing some amazing things with their software. And uh, I I have not talked to them directly. And I should say it's Cine Martin is the name of the company, but they call the product Cynic, C-I-N-E-C. Uh, but they're 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 doing a lot of amazing things with H.265, which is we've talked about uh, here on the podcast several times. Uh, I haven't seen too many people that are doing a lot of H.265 conversion stuff, uh, and and they're giving some amazing statistics about the compression rates and how fast they can process these things, and even the article that uh, Hugh did, I think it was Hugh or is it Karen? It was Hugh. Uh, talks about uh, the uh, encoding 8K, which is something yeah. that we haven't talked about much yet. And you know they're getting tiny ass little files out of these things. Uh, so I'm I'm impressed. I'm eager to see more about this. We've got some great great products that are coming down the pike, and and these guys are doing. 
uh, LUTs. They're doing 8K. Uh, I also saw in the article that uh, there's something that Google has now that I hadn't heard about called VP9. Yep, their open source version of H.265. So that's also included in the Cine Martin product. So check that out on planet5d.com. We've got some great stuff going on there. Do you know if this is uh, also GPU assisted? Is Does it have the ability to render via CUDA or OpenCL or GL? Is it? I always get that wrong. Uh, OpenCL, I believe. Thank you. No? Oh, I don't remember. Uh, wait, I, okay, another caveat. Uh, I'm a Mac user, right? Everybody knows that I'm a Mac guy, and I think everybody knows that uh, DJ is a PC guy. I am. Uh, so when we get into the next story or the one coming down the pike about uh, uh, oh we already talked I was I was thinking it was never mind <laughs> talking uh, about Lightroom DJ, the new no well yes that one that's the one uh, you guys really love to really talk about all the different cards that are in your PC and and doing different processor stuff and and us Mac guys we just kind of go hey. I think it works. Uh, it could work a little faster, maybe. And there are some cards you can put in a the Mac Pro, but you know, since you've got an iMac, you can't put anything in it. So we just do what we do. <laughs> I don't get too excited about Lightroom using the Geo card or whatever it is. The... <laughs> uh, basically, what <laughs> Mitch is talking about is the uh, latest leaked <laughs> version of of Lightroom 6, which, by the way, is 64-bit, no longer supporting 32-bit systems, it is rumored to have a GPU acceleration built in. Now, if you've used any of Adobe's other products, uh, OpenCL and CUDA support is pretty handy for speeding up rendering. As uh, Mitch mentioned, usually there's a OpenCL version available for Mac users, but uh, up until recently, it's kind of been lacking in a few departments. Um, the trash can shaped Mac tower that's new, their Mac pro is got two AMD GPUs soldered onto the board itself. And those do not support CUDA, which was where this stuff was originally going. So Adobe actually, and this is good because of Mac has started moving towards, uh, open CL standards as opposed to using CUDA, which is proprietary to NVIDIA stuff. Because you don't see a lot of NVIDIA cards that are capable of working with uh, Mac computers. There was the 285, uh, which was available in both a PC and a Apple variant. But uh, otherwise, the number of GPUs on the NVIDIA side that are, are good enough to be installed or designed to be installed with proper drivers is very small number. There isn't a, a whole lot you can do. And they're notorious for also making their computers not openable. I think even, didn't they do that with their uh, MacBook Pros recently where you lost your warranty if you opened it up yourself and installed upgraded stuff? Or did they solder the RAM down or something like that so you couldn't buy the cheaper one and upgrade it? Uh, well, again, I I don't keep that close a watch on people trying to hack the Apple stuff, so I apologize. Um. Anyway, this software decoding stuff is pretty sweet. If you're interested in it, go check out the link in the show notes. Uh, there's a little more information on Lightroom 6, as well as some of the decoding stuff that Mitch was talking about over at Planet 5D. 
Next up on the list is generic batteries here. Mitch, do you use the expensive $75 batteries from Canon or do you go out and get the cheap stuff? My experience so far with generic batteries has not been very good. Uh, I purchased several of the generic batteries two years ago and after, I don't know, three or four months, they basically would only hold a charge for about two hours and they sucked. And so I quit using generic batteries. So yes. Uh, And maybe I just bought bad brand. Maybe I didn't try enough different models, but I, I got burned by that and I ended up buying the Canon batteries. There are some premium models of generic batteries and some less premium models. Some of the cheap ones, the really cheap ones, and you can find LPE six and LPE eight batteries for as low as like two or three dollars. Those are wow. the ones that you're going to run into issues with in the future where they stop holding a charge or they don't charge correctly. Also, if you're cross-charging these with uh, the Canon charger, some of them will charge properly and some of them won't. So if you buy, for example, and I'm a fan of the generic batteries, I use Wasabi. They're slightly more expensive and maybe not slightly. They're double the price of the normal generic batteries, but they're still a quarter of the price of the Canon batteries. And I was actually (laughs) looking in my 6D that I have right here because I didn't know what battery I had in there. And sure enough, as soon as I opened it up, That is a Wasabi battery right there. Wasabi is not a sponsor of me in any way, but their batteries have been pretty reliable. And as a guy who has 17 LPE6 batteries in a bag in my kit, I generally know what the batteries are doing and when they're failing or when they're not working. And I have no problems whatsoever with these Wasabi batteries. The issue is only that the Canon charger sometimes does not charge them properly. So I've talked to people in the past where they say, man, these generic batteries are crap. I can't get them to work. They're not working right. I'm like, what charger are you using? They're like, well, I didn't want to use that flimsy charger that came with the battery. So I'm using my Canon charger. Well, sometimes the Canon charger will do the job and sometimes it won't. There's a decoding chip inside of the battery to trick the Canon charger into charging it, but it's not always smart enough. And with some of the later versions of the firmware for the 6D, it's so strict that it sometimes doesn't even recognize actual Canon batteries. It'll give you that generic battery error message when you start up the camera and you have to select OK to continue on. And those are Canon batteries that came with the camera. So that's what you're dealing with. What I recommend for people who are buying used batteries is actually to go pick up one of those uh, Pre-Stone dual chargers. They, they come in several different models. Uh, Watson also makes one. Pre-Stone makes one. They're, they're designed to charge two batteries simultaneously. They're about, well, hold on. There's a, a good way to buy them. They're normally, for, for whatever reason, they charge like $75 or $80 for the camera variant or the Canon variant. And that is dumb. Don't spend $75 on them. What you do is you go buy a version of it that comes with the plates that are for a battery system that's not popular. Uh, Several of the Panasonic's older models of batteries or the Sony FP brand of or uh, type of batteries, those plates, you can get the Watson or the Prestone charger that's a dual charger with the plates for about $35 to $40. And you can go to B&H and for $2 a piece, you can buy the upgrade plates that allow you to support uh, Canon batteries in the same charger. So instead of spending 75 or 80 bucks on the variant that has the plates that come with Canon battery adapters already, just buy them separately 
and buy the charger and just remove the plates from the old one. That's also really cool because B&H sells plates for those uh, devices that will handle multiple types of batteries. So in the case in my studio, I have my Sony camera, I have my Canon camera, I have my GH4, I have several other types of batteries. I still have a bunch of the LPE8 that go with the uh, Canon uh, T2i because I use that as a studio camera on occasion. Those batteries all work with the particular plates that you can install on these Prestone and uh, Watson chargers. So take wow. a look at those. The plates, like I said, $2.99. Yeah, I think B&H charges you shipping, so order all the plates that you want <laughs> because it's actually more to ship them than it is to buy the plates themselves. I'll say this again. DJ, you know some stuff. Good golly. Years and of I, experimentation, I, my friend. Years of experimentation. Uh, yeah. Well, it, and the thing is that you're willing to go look. I tend to be, maybe I, it's the Apple mentality, okay? You might might start learning that, the, you know, I want things simple. I don't want to have to go investigate 50 different chargers in order to find the best one that works in the long term. So having you do that for me and me just go read your website, then that makes all the, all the difference in the world, right? One extra caveat, though, for those of you that are super sensitive to high-frequency tones, the Prestone and Watson charger, I haven't had this happen, but people have reported it, the transformer coil inside of the charger hums at somewhere in the range of 16,000 hertz, and people have complained huh. about it giving them headaches and uh, making them nauseous. So if you are susceptible to coil wind, which happens in televisions and other devices as well as CPUs, um, you might want to stay away from that. But otherwise, for most normal people, it's completely okay to use one of those. <laughs> or if you're in the mid-80s, mid-50s like me, where you can't hear those high tones anymore, it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. I start, my wife has a high-pitched voice, and her voice is starting to get quieter and quieter as <laughs> as I get older, so probably losing that high-end hearing. Uh, next yeah. up on the list is actually the 5D Mark III. I don't know if you saw this um, recently, did. but there's several eBay sellers that have dropped the price down to $1,999. So that is... Uh, that is really an amazing price for the 5D Mark III. Do you think that signals another camera coming out very soon? Uh, if if camera if camera sellers on eBay are somehow being tipped off that Canon's got new cameras coming, uh, I'd like to know how they're getting those tips because I'm not hearing anything about that. Uh, Canon Rumors has better tips than I do. Uh, so it, maybe somehow they know. Maybe they're closer to the manufacturer than we are or the people that are suppliers that are making things for Canon and, and they're getting a hint. Uh, I don't know. I, don't, I can't say one way or the other whether that's a real hint that the 5D Mark IV is coming soon. Now, one thing to note is that these sellers aren't uh, the traditional... Asian buy it big selling companies. These are actually American distributors not selling gray market cameras. So to get it down to that price, usually what they end up doing is they buy a kit camera and that's straight from either Canon or one of the distributors. And then they separate out the lens and the camera body itself. If you do decide to go this route, uh, just make sure that they're very specific about shipping and delivery 
you need to have someone there to sign for the package. Otherwise, they uh, won't usually deliver it to you. So it's a really good deal as long as you're home to receive your camera. <laughs> also note that these are on eBay, so they are being shipped in the mail, and they aren't in the same package as you get a individual camera. They're in the bigger package with the lens removed. So they do float around a little bit. My cameras have always come just fine, but they come in the bigger box as opposed to the small just camera box because it's the combo kit. But uh, that's usually not an issue. Uh, They usually throw some styrofoam beads in there or something like that to keep it from bouncing around. So definitely check that out. If you're interested in getting a 5D Mark III, that's the cheapest I've seen it. And it'll probably be pushing the use price down even further. And don't be complaining if the Canon does announce a 5D Mark IV two weeks from now, (laughs) because I can't tell you how many people I see go, oh, man, if I'd only known, wine, wine, wine. Well, Oh, man, one of the complaints that people always come up with is, well, I'm, I'm holding out on a camera until the next one comes out. Well, okay, that's fine. But if you're holding out for the next camera, you're always going to be holding out for the next camera. And you should be out there filming and doing stuff as opposed to waiting for the next tech to come out. Go spend your money on some lenses, get a cheap body and film until such time as you have a budget to buy the next camera. There's nothing wrong with the image quality out of the 5D Mark III or this 6D that I have right here. I film with this on a regular basis. The cameras are good. They do the job that you need them to do. And the tech that you're lusting after is just going to prevent you from doing filmmaking itself or photography or whatever else. That's a, it's a perfectly awesome point, and people ask me that all the time. Should I wait? Should I wait? And I said, do you need to film something right now? Then buy a camera. For the vast majority of people, the resale value is going to be pretty dadgum good. And what I tell them to do is to just basically think of it as a long-term rental. Uh, you know, you can go rent a Canon 5D Mark III, for example, at Lens Pro to go uh, for maybe $100, $150 a week. I don't know what the exact numbers are. But let's say you buy, so over three or four months, that's going to cost you four, five, six hundred $600, right? If you own the camera and you sell it six months later and you only lose $500 in the deal, then, you know, that's basically what you, a lot cheaper than what you would have spent to rent the thing in the first place. Exactly. So, and if you're using it and it's making you money, then... It's a it's a value and a win for you, that's and right. you can put that money that you gain from selling it into the next camera that you want, and then you can exactly. go get the new technologically advanced camera. Or in the case or, of the T2i line, uh, you know all the T2s all the way up to the T6 now have been so close to each other that you probably just wait another generation until something actually new comes out. Right. Uh, I ended up getting stick stuck stick stuck my tongue with the 5D Mark II, okay, stuck, uh, because uh, I was going to sell that right after I bought the 5D Mark III, but I ended up doing so many comparisons. Everybody always wants to know, well, how does it compare to the 5D Mark II, the original camera, so I can shoot video side by side with the new camera and the old camera and say, okay, this is the difference. So I ended up getting to keep both of mine, and I still use them both, but uh, otherwise, the the mass, vast majority of the time, you can resell those and get quite a good value out of them. Even if you only you, know, if you buy something new this week and next week they come out with a new version, they're still okay. 
Yeah, I'm looking on eBay, man. The Canon 5D Mark II, still a great shooter camera, and the prices are sub $1,000. So you can get the 5D Mark II for less than you can buy a new 5D Mark III and a 6D. That means you get some good features. Also, if you're a filmmaker, the 5D Mark II had the ability with the proper Sescom cable to monitor audio with headphones, whereas this 6D in front of me does not. So it's actually a little bit better to go, maybe if you're just looking more for filmmaking, to go with the 5D Mark II. And if you're upgrading from the T2i line and going full frame, maybe that's the camera to look at. It's not a bad camera. There's nothing wrong with the 5D Mark II other than exactly. it's behind the tech of the new cameras. It still shoots exactly. good video. It does a lot of stuff that's really awesome, has magic lantern support. So don't lust after the most expensive stuff. Look at your budget and make the choices based on that. And I Very always good. say go with lenses, man. If you're Absolutely. If you're worried about equipment, spend your money on lenses because – those will really hold their value. A Canon 50mm F1.2 will still be worth about $1,000 in two more years. And uh, even if they were released a new one tomorrow, it would probably only drop a couple hundred bucks. So those are better investments if you're worried about losing money on your equipment and just take good care of it. Exactly. All right. Awesome point. On to the pick of the week. I see you've got some clamps here. Tell me what they are. I have... What's called the nasty clamp? Nasty, uh, I, nasty. Uh, I I use them all the time. Down, if you can see uh, on the screen, there is a quarter twenty thread down at the end of the nasty clamp. Uh, there are several different varieties that you can get. They are bendable. You can stack the the neck with uh, additional. And DJ's running off to get another. Yeah, you've got you've got the same kind of thing there, don't you? Do you um, have a nasty clamp? I have some nasty clamps, but I have a pro tip for you on your nasty clamps. Once you're done demonstrating that, uh, the the cool thing about the nasty clamps simply is the fact that they work so well, and the uh, clamp itself is very strong. You have to have good strong hands. Sometimes my wife can't even do them, or my kids can't for sure. Uh, so they're very strong, very sturdy, and very useful around the studio. For all sorts of, I mean, you can put a, I've, I've actually mounted 5D Mark III to this with uh, my 24 to 105 and had it stand up. Now, obviously, if you've got it bent over, it's it's not necessarily going to stay, uh, but it can hold a camera if you want it to. Uh, lights, uh, flash units, whatever, goes right on there. So if you swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com and you search Nasty Clamp in the corner, or I believe there's a competing, a competing brand from Australia that also makes a similar clamp. The thing that's kind of interesting about these clamps is this joint right here. And you notice, Mitch, that mine doesn't have any endings on it at all. It's just a long piece of, of tubing. Right. These are actually used normally in manufacturing to provide oil to cool uh, cutting blades and things like that. They're hollow down the middle. So what they do right. is they, they hook these onto a, a hose system. Well, the only special part that Nasty Clamp and some of these other companies make is the quarter 20 adapter and the clamp itself. So if you need to go longer with these, you can go onto an industrial website and there's links on dslrfilmnoob.com for that. Uh, you can buy these lengths of tube for a couple of dollars and they they come apart so you can just snap them apart and hook them on however much you need, whatever you want, and then hook them back together. Oh, man. This they is, are tough. 
they're but, tough. And but that's why it makes them strong, right? Exactly. And these are off the shelf. So if you really want to get wacky with these and wrap them around something for extra support or something like that, you can buy these lengths of tubes for a really affordable price. The nasty clamps are really good. And for whatever reason, the other company that makes them is escaping me, but, uh, they're, they're both using the same tube lock system. And then the only difference is that they have a special adapter for their clamp and then for the end piece. So if you need to extend those, these are only a couple of bucks and you can buy them on eBay or from hardware, not hardware stores, but hardware distributors like Granger or something like that. This is a little too specialized to be in your radio shack or your, you know, Harbor freight or whatever. But did you see, speaking of radio shack, did you see the news? They're closing They're down. down. Yeah. I, I was going to post that and I forgot all about it till you just said it. Yeah. That's a, the, uh, my friend, Barry Anderson, anytime he needed anything, he'd run to Radio Shack because they, there was always one in, in the town that you're in. Uh, they always had the electronics you needed. If you're out shooting and, and you didn't know where to get something, you always go to Radio Shack. So he's really bummed. Well, the good thing about the Radio Shack deal is that uh, the independently owned stores are still going to continue to exist in a lot of towns. Ah. So the Radio Shack in the town that I live in right now isn't closing down. They're just going to rebrand, I guess, and continue to do pretty much the same thing. So for those of you with small town Radio Shacks that are kind of the supplier, most of those are uh, in conjunction with the store that they're in or something like that. So they'll be continuing to exist, which is good for DIY project people. Uh, the main branches and the big radio shacks are going away. And I believe the cell phone portion of it was picked up by Sprint or something like that. So uh, they'll continue to have kiosks where they sell you uh, mid-level phones for Sprint or Nor- Nortel or something like that. So what's your pick of the week, DJ? My pick of the week is actually this guy right here. I've been holding this camera up, but I haven't talked much about the strap. I know a lot of people use neck straps and things like that. I find those cumbersome and uncomfortable. Uh, generally, I don't like having something hanging off of my neck because it chafes the back of my neck, especially if I'm running around a lot and the camera's swinging all over the place. So I use this. It's made by Matten, and it's a leather grip that just slides on, and you can get it in black. I know this is a little hipstery to get it in the brown with the light tan, but... I like it, so whatever. No, just deal. Um, but anyway, this is about $35. I've had this one on this particular camera for about uh, two years now, and it's held up really well. Uh, you'll notice that I have the Tamron 24 to 70 on here, and this is IS. So if you're filming, by having this on there, it gives you a little bit more support when you're running around handheld, and then the IS in the lens helps to stabilize it. So it's a little bit easier, a little bit better way to hold your camera when you're running gun shooting. It's also really nice for photography, too, because if someone comes up and tries to steal your camera from you, they have to rip it out of your hand, literally, and the leather strap is is quite good. The other thing to note is that it has this little clip right here, and this clip allows you to hook a regular neck strap on there if you want and go to the other side. So you can use this in conjunction with a neck strap if you really want to get extra fancy. But these are $35 to $40. You can find them on Amazon. You can find them on eBay. You can find them, uh, I believe B&H carries them as well. And they're really nice, solid straps. I mean, road testing this for several years, and it's still held up nice and strong. That means it's not just a cheap piece of junk, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I've, I, I've recently been doing that as well, as opposed to using a neck strap. I was sent uh, the uh, clip 
called uh, from Peak Design, which is very similar to that, although it's not quite as wide and it's not as cushiony. I think is is that leather one that okay. you have. Um, but I I really like just having my camera in my hand as opposed to having that neck strap. Now the Peak Design guys have uh, a whole bunch of different products that all work together. So it's kind of cool because you can get the thing they call a leash, which is the neck strap. And then that also it has the same connectors as the, uh, the cuff thing. So you can use them together if you want to. But I really like the idea that the one that you have is very cushy. It yes. looks very cushy. It's very padded. And it's also, yeah. if you look at the cutout here, it kind of curves in right here where it goes up against your hand. So it gives a really nice, especially if you have a small hand, it kind of curves to your wrist. So it doesn't jab you in the wrist when you're using it. And I wear this, you know, I've had this on my hand for an entire day before shooting and it's really comfortable. It makes it really easy and you can do this. So like if you do need to stretch your hand out, you're not going to lose your camera and you can watch me shake this and just break it right now on camera. That would be great. But, um, (laughs) but yeah, it's really, it's a really good strap and the price is, is nice. I would like to see something like you're talking about with maybe an interchangeable interlock system. And maybe I'll have to check out the units, uh, you're explaining because this could use some other ways to attach it. The other, uh, well, the only complaint I have about it is for these particular devices, uh, they actually have an extra plate that screws onto the bottom of your camera, and then that's what you use to attach it to a hot shoe, or I mean a, a tripod sliding plate or whatever if you're using like the 501 PLs or something like that. Right. But the issue is, is this doesn't have the second hole. So if you're familiar with like the uh, 501 PL plates, they have a little uh, nubbin on the end that, that slides in so you have two points so that it, the camera can't turn sideways. When you have this on... Um, there is no second hole to kind of lock it in. So you screw it in and then you're kind of just pushing it up against the uh, the plate itself. So that part's a little bit disappointing and maybe I'll check out these Peak Design hand grips that uh, Mitch, uh, Mitch mentioned because maybe they have a better mounting bracket on the bottom. Uh, but for the price, especially if you're shooting a lot of handheld, these are definitely something to check out. So uh, made by Matten. And there's a video as well as a bunch of pictures of this particular model on DSLRfilmnoob.com. This one, like I said, a couple years old, and it's still in really decent shape. So good job, guys, on making a quality hand grip. Cool. Uh, I have put links in the show notes. Uh, I don't have the link to the Matin one that you have, so make sure you put that in the show notes so people know where to find it. Yes, and the show notes, guys, are a work in progress. We work off of them, but uh, we may or may not get everything that we talk about in the show. So if something's missing from there, uh, put a message in the uh, comment section on YouTube or whatever, and we will try and get those updated, or I will try and get those updated as I see them pop up. Mitch, where can people find you? I'm at some website called planetfyd.com. And there's also planetmitch.com if you want to find out about some of my other projects. Hey, one other thing that you have going on that's pretty cool. Tell people about that uh, um, conglomeration page that you set up that has basically all of the camera blogs in one spot. Because that's pretty cool. Uh, You're talking about the HDSLR news page? Yes. Why, thank you. Uh, If you go to planet5d.com, the blog, there's a link in the menu at the top. Or if you just go to hdslrnews.planet5d.com, thank you for noticing that. 
it's something that I've had for a long time and, and not as many people know about it, but it basically is really an RSS feed of all of the different websites that I follow. I often go there when I'm looking for news to see what other people are actually talking about. Uh, so it's, it's great that you bring that up. Thank you. I'm a little old school. I use an RSS uh, feeder. Um, I actually use Dig's uh, RSS reader because Google shut theirs down. And I know Dig isn't a name you hear in news much anymore, but uh, their RSS reader is really good. But I noticed uh, uh, Mitch's page there, and I started looking at it, and it's like, man, that's got a lot of uh, cool stuff. And a few of the bloggers that I didn't actually even know anything about are on there. So it was really neat to see that and kind of explore who's talking about cameras and where and what they're talking about. You also have that nice little thing that pops up that tells you like, there's a new article from this guy today and a new article from this guy today. And it has kind of a count thing going. So that's pretty nice as well. You can find cool. my stuff on DSLRfilmnoob.com or on this YouTube channel. We are also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Search for DSLR Film Noob and you will find all of our stuff. Mitch is our continuing co-host and I like having him around. So Aww. make sure you swing over to his website and give him a little bit of support, guys. On that note, we will see you next time for another episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast.